Awaken Beauties, finally, it's here. The truth to empower women to true inner beauty through a healthy mind and inner biology. I am your hostess, Cassandra Keel, a 20-year salon owner, organic beauty product formulator, positive mind management, and clinical hypnotherapist. And I am here to help you stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Sponsored by evokebeauty.com. EVOQBeauty.com. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to the Awaken Beauty Podcast. I am Cassandra, your organic beauty clinical hypnotherapist and biofeedback practitioner. And I am oh so femininely happy to be with you today and our beautiful guest. But first, I'm going to start out with just a couple questions. Do you find it challenging to claim your strengths or do you diminish yourself to make others comfortable? If you're a woman, you know your brain works differently than your husband, perhaps your male friends, or even this, what we call this masculine hustle and grind ecosystem that in my mind is actually shifting. You also may have a brain that tends to lean on ADHD tendencies and your executive function sharpness is a bit rusty, which is the ability to restrain impulsivity, having a great working memory, time management and even organizational skills. Or perhaps you are a bit energetically sensitive or have high levels of empathy. So you make your decisions through a combination of some rational decision-making and your intuition. Well, our beautiful, brilliant, and buzzworthy guest, Dr. Tracy Alloway, who is an award-winning psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker, is here to show the dynamic ways that women's brains are different and how she dispels the myths so women can stop undermining, downplaying, and apologizing. So whether it's to decision-making, leadership, or relationships, I absolutely love how she breaks it all down in her new book, which we will be highlighting today, Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain. So buckle in, ladies. Tracy has profound knowledge and is the author of 14 books. And today we'll tap into how simply changing the words we speak, how to claim your individual strengths, and how we can connect in a meaningful way, even through social media. So with that said, Miss Tracy, welcome to the Awaken Beauty podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited when you reached out. I'm so delighted to be here today. Absolutely, hon. Well, you are just, I, I've, I'll tell you and I'll tell you again, you're absolutely stunningly beautiful and you. Uh, you have a stunning brain. And I love that you really took the time um, from just the veracity of your your knowledge and all your other books to really focus on the female brain. And uh, I, I would really kind of love to hear what drew in your interest and why you felt compelled between your, your studies that you've done and how you've kind of accomplished this book and what was your passion to bring it about at this time? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that question. You know, as a, 
as a researcher, as a scientist, I began looking at a lot of these articles and noticed that a lot of times the patterns they were describing was sometimes a one size fits all, but I know that our brain is far more nuanced than that. And even in my lab, and there's a growing body of research to suggest that the way in which we make decisions, we have very different drivers and motivators. And really a big um, incentive for me in writing this book was to create awareness, first of all, so that we can have an understanding of how our brain is working and we can maybe stop living or believing some of these myths that we hear about our brain. Are we too emotional? Do we have to be more X or more Y and so on? And really just, first of all, have that awareness. And with that awareness, we can have an appreciation and really lean into some of the strengths of our brain. Yeah, I really love it. And, you know, with all of the with all the information, and I think now it's kind of getting out into the masses that, you know, just the power of neuroplasticity, um, you know, so, so nurture versus nature and the functionality of our brain and how we can change our brain, but to really leverage and really tap into what are the differentiation between the male brain and the female brain. And there's, you know, there's a lot of other books and articles about this, but I would really love to kind of, um, maybe start there, the difference between, um, the men's brain and the female brain, and then also really how it plays out in our life and how we are in relationship with each other and also with women and our relationships with other women. So maybe we could start off with that. And I think I read somewhere that, um, the men's amygdala tends to be a little bit larger than a woman's amygdala. Is that true? Yes, that's true. And that surprised me too. And I um, came across that fact. But so the amygdala, I'm sure, as your listeners are aware, is our brain's emotional center. And so to know that it's, you know, proportionally larger in the male brain was really interesting. And yet, you know, we, as women, we often hear this, are we so emotional? Why are you so emotional when you make decisions? And I really wanted to explore that, um, especially in the context of stress. And I wanted to know why women are perceived as being emotional when they make stressful decisions. And so I used a very common philosophical dilemma. It's called the trolley dilemma, and it's made its way into popular media nowadays. And some of your listeners may be familiar with this. It's where you're a, you know, a bystander and you see this train hurtling towards you and you can see that it's going to injure or harm five people. Now you can save the day by switching the track that the train is on, but it will end up harming one person as a result. And so we know first of all that there are two decision-making pathways in the brain. One um, governed by the amygdala, our a hot decision-making center, our emotional brain. And the second, um, the cold decision-making brain, the rational, the prefrontal cortex, where you're weighing all your possibilities and making a decision accordingly. And we know that women tend to make a, you know, a very emotional decision in that instance. And even in my own lab, some of our female participants would say things like, this is, this is too hard, I can't do it. We had some, you know, some really feeling the effects of that. But what I found was really interesting was that researchers identified that the reason women appear to rely on the amygdala is because we are motivated by a desire to protect. We don't want to cause harm. And on the surface, this is perceived as us being emotional. But in fact, it's coming from an amazing protective place where we're saying we don't want to cause harm to five people or one person. What's the alternative? What can we do instead? But what I found was another interesting piece in my lab was that if you do need to flip the switch, so let's say, for example, you're being headhunted, you're offered a job in another city, it does mean leaving your team, your current company, 
And your first instinct, your desire to protect your thinking, well, I don't want to let my boss down. What about my team? We've grown together. And so maybe you're having a hard time turning down that amygdala and turning up that prefrontal cortex. And I found that sticking your hand in a bucket of ice for one minute is a physical stress. And it's enough to activate our fight or flight response. And multiple studies have demonstrated this ice uh, effect. And what it does is it switches the amygdala's attention. So it's busy thinking, what do I need to do with the stressor? And at that moment, it frees up your front of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, to then kind of have that big picture and weigh the pros and cons of the decision you need to make. Yeah, I found that so fascinating. So first and foremost, I have to, first, I have to tell you a funny story. Because when I heard this research and this study, and I went and looked it up and uh, I had a flashback to a memory in high school. So when, when I was in high school, uh, as a midlife, uh, just undiagnosed someone with ADHD, my brain did not compute numbers very well. And, or at least that's the story I tell myself, but everybody's a math magician. It's just how we were taught and how we, sure. we compute sure. in our everyday life all the time, right? We're always rationalizing how many minutes do I need to get there? So sure. with that set aside, um, I had a math teacher that I had a pretty big crush on. And so I remember one day in class, he asked me to answer the question. I did not raise my hand. He said, Cassie, what's the, you know, what's the answer to this question? And I, and I turned bright red and I could feel my face being mm -hmm. as hot as ever, yeah. much to your description, the hot brain and the cold brain. And he turned to me and no kidding. He goes, Cass, buckets of ice, buckets of ice. And so I was laughing my, you know, what off when you <laughs> heard this is like, yeah, been there, got that one in high school, I have my whole head into the bucket of ice. But I really found this really interesting. And I did want to ask you if you, if you found any corollaries between, you know, like the default mode network and the task positive network in how, for a non-neurotypical brain or someone with neurodiversity and how that default mode network is kind of always, always yeah. going. If, mm -hmm. if you found that to be like, is it like this, this door opener that gives you the opportunity or how do you see any corollary there? Cause I find some similarities in this trust, um, trolley research. Yeah, actually not so much with that particular um, situation that you described, but definitely when we look at the default network, it kicks into play with creativity. So the default network or the default mode is more your, your subconscious, your creative brain kicking in. And right. we do know that individuals with those ADHD type symptoms are highly creative people. And that's because they have this incredible ability to look at all of these things and pull from them very quickly. So while, you know, some of us, you have these artificial creative scenarios, like um, one of them that I use in the lab and that's very commonly used is here's a pencil. Think of as many uses as you can with the pencil. Well, most of us are stuck at that moment. We're activating our prefrontal cortex, a logical brain. Like, well, we write, we draw, we, you know, very kind of familiar uh, uses that all of us will say, but that default network, if that is kicking in, you can say, well, a hair tie, maybe a little paddle for a mini boat. And you're just being highly creative at that point. And so we do see with someone with more of those ADHD type of 
cosmologies, they're the people that have these incredible ideas and they're, they're always throwing them out at you and their default uh, mode, the default network is firing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it, I guess what triggered me is, is to be able to put that at rest and be able to get into that rational thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause that's, it's oftentimes, you know, you don't have that clutch to be able to transition into the prefrontal cortex and be conscious and make a rational decision. And I also find the similarities of a lot of what you share in the book, um, on how to even externalize, you know, coming into rational decisions for women, mm-hmm. how to externalize it. And, and for me, it's very helpful to get it out of the brain and to do a pro and con list or mm-hmm. risk benefit analysis of, you know, if I do this now, what is it going to pull me away from later or, or the cost mm-hmm. of my energy with my brain? So maybe you can kind of go into, you know, some more of that kind of the rationalization and the strengths for women and how we do that um, a little bit, a little bit more in, um, in depth. Yeah. So one of the things I found fascinating too, was again, exactly as you mentioned, this idea is are women more risk averse? Are we less likely to take decisions and the risk return framework plays a big role, but not in the same way that it does for men. So while women do weigh risk versus the return that we're getting, they use another factor and they use emotions. In fact, if they find that emotional payoff is big for them, they don't even view the decision as risky. And I was talking to a female entrepreneur and she said, you know, it's, when I read that chapter, she said that light bulb for me, you know, because I moved my, my family when they were very young, new city, I had no job, no house. I just had a school for them. But for her, that payoff was so powerful and so emotionally beneficial. She didn't even view that as a big risk that she was taking. Um, And so I think that as women, we tend to focus on that return. But from an emotional perspective, we think, well, what what? you know, sort of positive energy and power are we getting from that decision? And if if it's big for us, then we're going to make that decision. We're going to make that risk. Yeah, I found that. I found that interesting. And so I could identify with it as well. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of, um, I think it's Tom Hartman's research on, you know, like the hunter farmer theory. And I think it's interesting that women are, uh, back to your book. It's, it's, we can be that rational decision where we have to make a rational decision on to do something quickly and to be smart about it and strategic if we need to, but we lean on the, you know, you talk a lot about the oxytocin, that bonding molecule. It just, we really love like bringing everything together. So in like the hunter farmer, even though we may be a huntress, Mm -hmm. you know, specifically if you're an ADHD women or what have you, but we also are very ceremonial. We -hmm. also bring the families together and we create the meal and we bring in the creativity and the play and the music. And so I really, I really loved that, you know, the power of the emotional brain and how we often can get a bad rap for it of being too emotional. So I love that you dispelled that myth. Yeah. And I love that you connected that to, to the gathering and that connectedness too, because that's one of our big mechanisms in times of stress. You know, typically there's a fight or flight or freeze response, but for women, we have a tend and befriend response. And it's exactly like it sounds. We seek out that emotional support. And that's one of the things research shows that that social support is a huge buffer for us, even when we're going through, you know, mental issues or challenges, that tend and befriend mechanism is what's going to get you through. 
Yeah. And so important, especially right now, as we come out of this last year and get, you know, we've, we've lost, we've, we've lost so much of the vitamin C that, you know, the, the community and the connection. And so I really love that. And it's something, it's a superpower for women and, and mm-hmm. may we all be able to lean on each other versus see it as a, a, a different C, which would be competition yeah. and something else that you bring up, um, you know, on pertaining to mental health, I thought was really interesting is just the intricacies of our endocrine system, our neurotransmitters. And you say that we have three times more receptors that are attached to our stress mechanisms in our body. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because it's, um, it might be even tied to the emotional piece where, you know, we tend to get a little bit rigged up a little bit more easily. Yeah. Yeah. And this brings us back, you know, to the question you started us off with, which is this idea of how our brains are structured differently. And this is certainly one of the ways where our neurochemistry and none of this is deterministic, but it's just, again, about knowing and having that awareness. But our neurochemistry is such that we do have three times more receptors that almost make us spotlight these things that are causing stress. So you often hear this Overthinking, this rumination is what psychologists call it. Why can't I just get it out of my head? I mean, the interview was five days ago, but I'm still thinking about it. Or, you know, that date was two days ago and I still can't get it out of my head. And and that conversation or that argument and that rumination, that overthinking, I found even in my own research is one of the big um, almost anti-buffers against experiencing uh, depression and you know depressive symptoms. So in other words, the more we ruminate, the more likely we are to start feeling depression, feeling depressive symptoms. Um, and the great thing is though, is that there's a very concrete and simple way in which we can rewire the brain. And again, studies show that just even changing one word instead of saying, yes, but you know, so, you know, how was your conversation? yes, but I didn't get to, you know, how was the interview? Well, but this changed the but to an and. Yes, and I got to showcase my skills. Yes, and I was able to network and meet new people and so on. Yeah, I loved that. Yes, and. And, you know, there's so much talk about reframing our language and Mm -hmm. clinically hypnotherapists, you know, just the power of words and their frequency. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we often forget that the electro- the electricity in our brain is fired up by the vibration of the words that we use both internally and externally. And someone who's been a salon order for like 22 years, that is, it is very much a passion of mine to change mm-hmm. and reframe that conversation that comes out of women's mind. They're always undermining and, mm-hmm. um, you know, really cutting themselves short. And I really loved the yes. And, and so I think that's a really great takeaway from your book, um, that everybody can start using right away. Um, the, but, you know, <laughs> separates everything that you said before yes. all the positive things that happen. And then you just start going downhill. So right. hey, let's create some neutrality and start moving up. Yes. And, and then allowing the reticular activating system to go and look for mm-hmm. proof that there mm-hmm. were things that you learned that there's a way yes. forward, that it's yes. not the end and things. I mean, I think our takeaways from what we learned and what we, what we know we can do better. So I, I just really love that reframing there. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. No, I, I appreciate that. And I liked how you brought in, you know, the way our brain will actually see confirmation too. Our, our brains are incredibly efficient. And so this whole idea of confirmation bias, when you have that and in there, you're absolutely right. Our brain is going to seek out ways to confirm what we've just said as well. 
Yeah. I think I may have to go to improv school to continue that. Cause I think it's so, yes. it's so ingrained in women, but, um, it's great. I love it. Now there's, there's another aspect I, you know, I'm huge on leadership and, um, all these different aspects around the different types of the brain that you go through in your book. So you have the love brain and the intelligent brain and the leader brain. Um, could you go through a couple of those frameworks um, in your book for the listeners? Yeah, so I start off, you know, talking about the, the stress brain and I look at risk and stress like we've just talked about and how to yeah. manage that. Um, I do talk about the love brain where I talk about the attraction versus the bonding, um, the attachment part of the brain. And for me, what was interesting when I was writing even the attraction brain is that there's this huge survey. There were 30,000 plus people, you know, across different countries. And it was so interesting to see that the patterns of what women are looking for, there was the same, this sort of commonality, if you will, that we're looking for stability and so on. But yet, actually, what research shows is that um, the type that we should be looking for is more personality type. Mm -hmm. Someone, you know, based on the big five, uh, things like extroversion, uh, conscientious, agreeable, and so on. And conscientiousness and agreeableness are big predictors of successful, by success meaning satisfaction, in a relationship. And, and that makes sense. Someone who's conscientious is going to prioritize your partnership, put effort and work into that, regardless of if it's two months into it or 20 years into it. Um, and agreeableness, if you think that every day our lives are made up of thousands of decisions, you know, what to eat for breakfast, what to eat for dinner, and all of these things, where to go on vacation. And having a sense of agreeableness can really make that partnership to a lot smoother. And so for me, that was just a, a nice different way of looking at attraction rather than do they meet this checklist that I have in my head? Do they have X job or X income level and so on, but really maybe a better indicator of satisfaction in a partnership could be better reframed as a personality type is a good, a good type for you. Yeah. I found that really interesting. And, um, just, as a single woman, and I just got myself back on one, so, you know, one app on my phone and I tend to erase them after I spend three weeks of swiping, right. And never touching the go button, Right. Um, but the, you know, the relationship big five, and you just mentioned most of them, but, um, I just found this interesting was the conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe neuroticism, yeah. Yeah. Um, extroversion agreeability, which I, I, oh my gosh, in in such a political and devising world. I mean, I think that that is something I see so often dividing marriages right now and yeah. openness. And I, I just really love these frameworks of how to, how women and men can kind of reflect, reflect on mm -hmm. these different pieces in how, how open they are about all of them and compassionate they are for their partner. And also absolutely when looking for a partner, I thought that was really, really great. Yeah. I appreciate that. Now let's move into empathy. Now, one piece in your book that I thought was very, very interesting was your position, not only on social media, but one piece that, um, 
I wanted to dive into is empathy. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a lover of Gabor Mate's work and, and trauma. And, you know, if we look at kind of like that framework, yeah. um, I can relate now to your book on, on how you say that empathy is learned and yeah. someone that goes through you stress, and you're talking a lot about the right kind of stress and stress in your book, but how stress can really at such a young age, build in that mm -hmm. mechanism and that strength of empathy as a woman goes through life, but also your view of empathy and social media. So as a very empathic person, a very sensory, sensitive, and uh, intuitive, I just really loved your framework there. And maybe you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah, I was talking and thank you for that. Um, I was talking about empathy, even in the context of altruism of generosity and how yeah you know, what motivates women to give, whether it's a tip in the restaurant or donate on Kickstarter. And, and, and empathy is a big mechanism for women. If they feel a sense of connection yes. to the community, they're far more likely to give. So it's not so much cause driven for women, right. but community built. Exactly. And, um, for me, that was such a game changer. I uh, sat on the board for the uh, Green Chamber here. Um, the US Green Chamber has a local branch, Northeast Florida. And one of the big questions was how to create awareness. And, you know, everyone has all these ideas. And knowing that actually women are are driven by the sense of community. How do we create a community that we can share and make them feel a part of so that they do want to uh, connect to that? But um, so with the social media piece too, I was invited to do a TEDx. And one of the things that I was looking at again, driving from my own research is that social media can be a powerful platform to develop our empathy because it is a learned skill. And we learn empathy from that first bond with our, our parent or caregiver, you know, when, when they look concerned or they share smile and we reflect that our mirror neurons in our brain are like the name suggests mirroring uh, reflecting that emotion and so we learn and you know I've I've had a, a couple clients that have come as you mentioned from very traumatic backgrounds and they've said to me I don't know how to read emotions I don't know when I'm in a conversation if someone is mad at me or they're laughing at me or with me and it's back to this idea of we learn empathy through our interactions with the people around us. And if we don't get a chance to practice either because of neglect or abuse or trauma, then it's, you know, as, a, as an adult or as an emerging adult, it becomes a lot harder. It's like learning a language, you know, and if you're learning that second language as an adult versus, you know, as part of your, your childhood, you can imagine the difference. And so I do think that social media can offer us that chance to connect because you could say, I had no idea this person was going through that. Well, that makes me understand maybe why they didn't want to stop and talk when I bumped into them at the coffee shop or something because they had a lot on their plate that day. Or even the fact that you may be going through some, something and you find someone across the world that's sharing their experience and you can automatically empathize, create a connection and even learn some ways in which you may you know, cope and uh, a little bit better too. So I do find that in my own research that the people who are actively engaging on social media, so not just the, the scrollers, you know, but actually taking time to comment or interact online tended to have higher levels of- Yeah, uh, yeah. I just, I thought, I thought that was, um, for me, it was a reflection point. And I think as entrepreneurs, uh, social media can be, um, 
just the word of it, it's, it's overwhelming, not sure. only to be constantly having to produce on it, but just the reframe again, um, on it's for me, I love social media as an educational portal to what you're saying, reflecting back to the book is empathy and social media is to when you approach your feed, that mm -hmm. it's not just a mindless habit, yeah. but to be mindful when you're going on in curiosity, yes, but obviously not getting into um, the compare and despair first and yeah. foremost, but yeah. to really be um, mindful of yeah. who you're double tapping, com leaving yeah. a comment and actually engaging with people and letting them know that you care, yeah. that you appreciated their message and how it may be reflected on you. I mean, mm -hmm. I get huge, good, warm oxytocin yeah. bubbles in my heart. When I hear somebody just, just make a heart on something. Cause I know that they read it and they affinitize with what I had to say. So yeah. I think that's, I think that's so, so great. And so thank you for sharing that. I think that that's a, it's a really nice reframe as we look at social media and how we actually, um, engage with it. And then the other piece that I love that you brought out is really um, the power of mirror neurons, um, we, we doing it all the time, but we don't notice it, but to invite our listeners into, um, the power of listening with all aspects of our consciousness and being able to lean in and be very, very present with someone that you're with yeah. allows that that connection to come through, um, versus to be thinking about the next thing or being impatient or thinking about what you have to say, but those mirror neurons really allow that person, even if you said nothing, they feel heard by the way that you're interacting with them, which I thought was, was really, really great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And then, you know, kind of, kind of slow it down and, and you can kind of explore some of the areas that I miss because the book is just so full of absolutely fun tips. Um, and research is the, the anti-social lie and the pro-social <laughs> lie, which I thought was like, all right, let's talk about lying. Cause everybody's got those white lies. So <laughs> I, I loved your perspective on that. So maybe you could share a little bit about, um, who ate the cookie and if it was them <laughs> or if it was their brother. <laughs> sure. So that's actually under the intelligent brain section. And part of my early research has found that with children, um, the higher your working memory or your higher, you know, which is a, a stand in for your, your smartness, if you will, um, the better you are at lying, which makes a lot of sense if you think of all the moving parts involved in telling a lie. And I found that that's in place from a very young age. But in that, in this particular chapter and in the book, I wanted to look again, you know, what motivates women to lie versus men and are there differences? So I wasn't looking so much as big lies versus small lies, but what type of lies we tell and researchers divide them into, as you mentioned, an antisocial lie where you lie to protect yourself versus a lie, a pro-social lie where you lie to protect someone else. And so very simply, if you think of a young child, you know, did you eat the cookie crumbs all over the face? No, no, I didn't. That lies clearly to protect themselves. They didn't want to get in trouble. But what if the mom comes and says, well, did your brother or sister eat the cookie? Now, if they lie, then they're lying as a pro-social lie to protect their siblings. Um, and so there's adult, adult research to show that as, you know, as adults, women will be more likely to lie pro-socially to protect someone's feelings or even to promote someone or push someone's uh, goals or agenda forward over themselves. 
but I wanted to see how far back this goes. And so I worked with three, four and five year olds and the task was really simple. I had a little waste paper basket, paper bowls, and I set them up to fail. So I'm sorry, but as a psychologist, sometimes you do these. I love you guys. How you do studies and put them in a room and have the cameras on. And then we get to watch it in the Ted talk. I'm like, this is so fabulous. But so they were set really far back. So there's no way they're going to make these little baskets. And of course, you know, our backs are turned and we give them a prize if they make so many baskets and we tell them not to cheat. But then we have one of our researchers who they don't know is part of our team come in and also do the same thing. But they cheat. They stand they stand really close to the basket. You know, they pick up the balls and just kind of cross the line and so on. And we found the young girls would be more likely to lie and say, oh, no, that adult didn't cheat cheat at all versus uh, lying for themselves if they did cheat. So we found that same pro-social lying present even in our three and four-year-old girls. I'll tell you, we will always take one for the team. (laughs) So, 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 so good. I just love it so much. Well, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to share, have you share anything else that really, um, that I missed or really stuck out in, you know, this new book. Um, there's just so many great different research studies and reframes. And I know there's one last thing that I was going to ask you about, and then I'll let you share is, is also going back to the reframe of the three, two, one and the negative bias that we all live with and how we can kind of reverse that as well. Yeah. Are you referring to in the bonding chapter when I talk about the five to oh the three to one? Yes. And so um, the three to one ratio is where for every negative thought we have, exactly. um, we say three positive thoughts. And, and I say this to my clients too, you know, when they say, oh, I just, I don't feel I can do well at work. I was like, okay, fine. Say the statement. But now you have to say three things that you did do well today at work or this week at work. And so always, again, like you mentioned a bit earlier, just charging up that language center of our brain. And we know from research that, The negativity bias, as you mentioned, is wired in a different part of the brain. And the optimism bias is located in our language center, the Broca's area. So language is so incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. to activate that optimism uh, part of the brain. And brain imaging studies show it, it is a little like a muscle in that the more frequently we articulate positive words, the more we see activation becoming automatic in that part of the brain. So your first instinct maybe used to be, uh, you know, why did I do this? By your slow language changing and reframing, you can actually activate that optimism bias more in your brain. Yeah. Again, awareness, awareness, awareness. I love, I love that so much. Um, so thank you for putting that in there. I think these empowering tools that we can actually start to instill in our everyday life are really useful and really simple. Um, you know, I, is it, I heard that it was, uh, eight to one. Is it, it, are you using the three to one to shorten it or is it, I think we've. No, that's just studies. It was a study that actually found that three to one. Um, so it makes work even easier for you. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, my dear, what did I miss in this brilliant book of yours that you would want to share anything else that you're up to or or um, finding, you know, in your life right now, or surprises that you found of, of how the, you know, book has had reaction to uh, other women, Um, anything else that you would like to share? No, I loved how much you covered. And, you know, one of the main things was for each chapter to have what I call 
a think takeaway. So it's exactly like you said, there's something concrete and actionable that you can do right away. So it's not just knowledge or awareness, but it's actually, I hope, something that you can do. And I certainly practice a lot of these things as well. But the yes and and the three to one are big uh, in my everyday practice as well. And I hope that your listeners and hopefully become readers of the book uh, will find something that they can glean and, and put into practice for them too. Oh, they will. And uh, your book has already been ordered and it's going to be sitting in my waiting room. So thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you. Definitely going to be expanding all of that love. And, uh, you know, something I always ask on the Awaken Beauty podcast is uh, what is something deep, deep, deep that, you know, doesn't have to be around the book, but that you've deeply awakened to uh, as of late? I would say it was the happiness chapter for me. Um, and certainly when I wrote that, it's also the most personal chapter. I'm a very you know, private person, but as I was writing that, I did wanna share some of my story too, just because the science behind what I was writing made such an impact for me. You know, Things like the actionable items that I found really helpful in switching my mindset when they were days that were incredibly hard. And you hear this idea that, oh, it's happiness a choice. and for me, just sometimes even going out of the car into the grocery store was was so overwhelming. And how these simple, not you know, awareness of how my brain was working and what I could do was making a difference. So, I would say that that was was my awakening. That it wasn't that I was resigned to feeling this way, and I, I certainly you know had the space to feel that way. But there was also something that I could do to help slowly rewire and train my brain differently. Oh, so sweet. So wonderful. And I'm so appreciative of you and um, just your advancement in the field and what you're bringing forth and blessing so many. So definitely, definitely everybody lap into the show notes and definitely get Tracy's latest book. Everything will be in the show notes. Um, she has uh, many, many different podcasts and YouTube interviews as well that explore the different parts of the book. Um, but please tap into the Awaken Beauty podcast. Tracy, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate you. Uh, and until next time, everybody stay sane, get sleep and bring your sexy back. <laughs> Well, hello, Awaken Beauty. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Were you inspired? Please leave a comment or your own personal aha moment so others can capture exactly what you did. Also, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're interested in high quality natural products for your hair, skin, and wellness, including organic, CBD, please visit evokebeauty.com. Again, that is evokebeauty.com, E-V-O-Q-Beauty.com. And until next time, darling, stay sane, get sleep, and bring your sexy back. Mm -hmm.